It's election day in Northeast Ohio. The Democratic primary for the congressional seat to replace Marsha Fudge. By the end of today, we should know who will have the job. It's the Democratic nominee, but there's no chance a Republican can win. It's this week in the CLE, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Jane Cahoon, Layla Tassi, and Laura Johnston. And Jane Cahoon is our political editor. You're in the hot seat today. Yeah, yes, I am in the hot seat, but <laughs> I am not going to make a prediction because I don't want to come on here tomorrow all bleary eyed after being up half the night, um, only to be told I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it is very hard to predict because it's a, a tiny number of voters will decide. Turnout will be as paltry as it gets. So it's whichever candidate manages to get people to come out. Chantel Brown is has got a challenge here because she did not get the vote out for the presidential election. Can she get it out for herself? She's the Democratic Party chair and a county councilwoman. Nina Turner has been inflaming passions all over town. We'll have to see. Let's begin. Do I have this right? HB6 was not the first time the disgraced Sam Randazzo took a giant sum of cash from First Energy after making a decision that greatly benefited the utility. Jane Cahoon, this story by Andrew Tobias yesterday makes my jaw drop even further than I thought it could on this <laughs> First Energy scandal. I cannot understand how Mike DeWine could appoint this guy to be the PUCO chief when he was so deeply in First Energy's pocket. What's the story? Yeah, according to some new documents, you you are correct. <laughs> he did get more money. This recent deferred prosecution agreement that First Energy signed with the U.S. Justice Department to avoid prosecution in the HB6 bribery scandal, it, it had already revealed that, that Randazzo the man who, as you said, would be named by DeWine as chairman of the PUCO, had been paid about $22 million over nine years uh, by First Energy through these you know, consulting agreements bef you know, before he became the PUCO chair. Um, and that this was through a couple of companies that Randazzo owned. But on Monday, as you said, Andrew got a, a copy of Randazzo's consulting contract with First Energy, and he was able to connect the dots between what was in that contract and what was laid out in the deferred prosecution agreement, namely that Rendazzo was rewarded with a lot more money after he switched sides and dropped his opposition to a key regulatory move that First Energy was seeking at the time. This was in 2015, uh, and at that time, Randazzo was in private practice, and he represented this trade group of large industrial electricity customers. But at the same time, he had this consulting agreement with First Energy. So in this role representing the trade group, he agreed to stop opposing First Energy's bid for state approval of what was then a really controversial power purchasing agreement. And that would have effectively bailed out some of its aging power plants, including the Davis Bessie nuclear plant and the WH Samus coal plant near Steubenville. Now, interestingly, that move, which eventually got blocked by federal regulators, it was kind of like an early iteration of what eventually did become House Bill 6, this nuclear bailout bill, which we now know is at the center of this ongoing corruption uh, probe by the feds. Uh, 
you know, also interestingly, Randazzo had opposed a similar request request from American Electric Power the previous year, arguing that it would cause customers' electricity bills to, to go up. But this time, you know, he threw his support behind it, which was uh, for okay. First Energy's request, which was considered pivotal. All right. So, so stop. So here's the deal. He's representing a bunch of business interests that would suffer based on this measure. And he opposes it because he's representing them. And then he changes his mind and they give him an extra $9 million. It's, you know, it, it's, they more it's, than quadrupled his contract going from owing him about $2.5 million to owing him $11.2 So, So here's the thing. <laughs> so he's gotten $22 million from First Energy. And he's the guy named the PUCO chief to regulate First Energy. I mean, I, what, what, what boggles my mind this morning is that it doesn't appear that Mike DeWine ever said, hey, Sam, how much have you been paid by the utilities I might be asking you to regulate? Because that gives you an enormous conflict of interest. Who do you think Randazzo is going to favor when he's been paid $22 million by First Energy? You and me? the ratepayers or first energy, which has made him a millionaire many times over. This is a staggering piece of news that Andrew put together and great job in, in deciphering it. But, but I, I think this more than ever before raises serious questions about Mike DeWine. It's almost like first energy called Mike DeWine and said, Hey, we want Randazzo as our PUC chief. And Mike DeWine said, yes, sir. Because where was the vetting? What, what did he do to actually ask, Hey, Sam, what makes you a good PUCO chief? Because I doubt he knew that there was $22 million there. I think he depended upon advice from some of his top people who, as we know, had their own connections to, to First Energy. So, yes, it certainly does raise questions. And as we've talked about before, it's going to dog him in his reelection campaign. We and, need to um, reformulate the, how the PUCO is put together. It almost it, we almost need some automatic inclusion, like half of the commission needs to be representatives chosen by the ratepayers. That the governor doesn't even get to pick them. That that the only way we're going to have a voice on this thing is if you have some independent way of doing it. Because because Mike Dewine has proven he is completely incapable of getting this right. Yeah, this whole scandal has really put that whole nominating process under fire. I think they reformed it. Maybe they used to be elected or something, and this was supposed to be a way to reform it. But they ended up with, you know, utility folks on the nominating commission and so forth. It, it's it's kind of complicated to explain, but good government people have been saying, we need more disclosure in this process. They've been saying that for a while now. Well, let me ask you this, and we're going to ask this, obviously. Do we think that Mike DeWine has asked any of the PUC nominees since this disgraceful exit of Sam Randazzo if they've been paid by any of the utilities they would regulate? I'm betting not, but we're going to find out. So this week in the CLE... What does it mean that Cuyahoga County has reached the federal government's threshold for substantial transmission of COVID-19 with its jumping caseload? Leila Tassi, we can't keep up with this story. This morning, Giant Eagle said, you're not coming into our stores anymore unless you're wearing a mask. It seems like there's a cascade happening here to get us back into mask wearing mode. But we don't really know yet what it means for Cuyahoga County, do we? Because the Cuyahoga no. Health Board is once again showing its great decisiveness. 
<laughs> Did I detect sarcasm there? I, I uh... So when you hit this point, the <laughs> CDC recommends everyone wear masks indoors, even if even if you've been vaccinated. The CDC has three classifications for transmission. There's low, moderate, substantial, and high. And we had been in that moderate transmission category until over the weekend when our, our new infection rate crossed the threshold of 50 or more cases per 100,000 residents in a seven-day stretch. Through Saturday, Cuyahoga County's seven-day range logged 52.5 cases per 100,000, and that's up from 39.5 a week earlier, according to CDC data. For the past three weeks, the number of new cases in the county went from 100 to 245 and then to 328. And a week ago, Lorain County was the only county in Northeast Ohio that had hit the substantial transmission mark. Now Cuyahoga, Giaga, Lorain, Medina, Portage, they're all in the substantial transmission classification. So there is a climbing caseload, but the good news is hospital admissions for COVID-19 declined in Cuyahoga County over the last seven days and fewer than 10 people died during that span. So that could really reflect that infections are less severe for people who've been vaccinated. But man, that would also mean that a whole lot of people who've been vaccinated are experiencing these breakthrough infections. And, um, you know, the Cuyahoga County Board of Health, as you said, will hold a press conference on Wednesday, uh, a couple of days from their first announcement of that we've hit this new mark uh, to address what this means for us. So specifically with kids returning to school in a matter of weeks, what does it mean for them? Many districts have released their COVID plans for the fall already. And, and you know, honestly, they're pretty loosey-goosey about COVID. My, my, my district said masks are optional and they'll try to maintain three-foot social distancing when they can. But otherwise, things are pretty much back to normal. And I don't expect to see a whole lot of kids wearing masks unless it's strongly urged or, or uh, you know, required. The, the, the plan says nothing of how the district would handle a heightened state of transmission. In fact, my district's plan doesn't say anything at all about maintaining flexibility based on guidance for the Board of Health. So right. I, as a concerned parent, cannot wait to hear what the Board of Health has to say on Wednesday. But let's step back. The one, one of the few things that our Cuyahoga County Health Board did that was actually beneficial, and they did very little that was beneficial, <laughs> was to say, if we get to the red zone, remember that color chart that we had that was kind of goofy, but they said, right. if we get to the red chart, we're going to recommend schools do X, Y, and Z. And so mm -hmm. everybody waited and we hit red and all the school districts did X, Y, and Z. They put all the precautions in, they sent the kids home. So if the County Health Board were to come out Wednesday and say, look, we're in that threshold. While we're in that threshold, we think schools should mandate masks for everybody because the kids can't be vaccinated and we need to keep them safe. School districts, I think, would feel a legal liability if they didn't do it. If they if they maintained what your district is doing and said, yeah, we're going to leave that up to the parents. And then your kid got really sick. There'd be a legal liability, I think, that you could say, look, the, the, the scientists said you needed to mandate masks. You didn't do it. And now... I'm suffering because of it. And, and my kid is suffering because of it. You know, you're going to pay some damages. So the County Health Board does have the chance here to do something good, right? I, I want to believe, though. Yes, you're right. I want to believe that districts will respond to whatever they say tomorrow. But the truth is, when you look at the the plan that was released, at least in my district, and, and I think Laura's district, too, has a very similar masks optional kind of thing, the tone of it is completely different from a year ago 
a year ago where it was all about safety. And they probably said a thousand times in their reopening plan, we are, we defer to the County Board of Health for all our guidance. They are, they are dr- driving this ship. We are uh, waiting on their every word about what's the right thing to do here. This is completely different. The, the but tone it was... of this is, is parents decide it's back to, you know, back to the way we once were. And and I, I really fear that it's because so many parents have put the pressure on the district. They've made it clear that some a lot of them had one foot in the public district and one foot in a in the private uh, school world where they they had their kids enrolled in both public and private, waiting to see what the mask decision was going to be. All right, and- I'm going to play. Let me play optimist <laughs> while you play pessimist. They wrote these plans for the most part during that period of the early mm-hmm. summer when we thought the, the pandemic was ending. You know, everybody said, "We're done. Take your mask off." All the stores dropped their requirements. Nobody foresaw that that because of all the fools who won't get vaccinated that we would have another rampaging variant of the virus which we have now everybody's getting it so so there is a chance given what's going on now and given what the health board could say tomorrow that they might change it look think about it from we'll the see. I, I totally agree with you chris but think, this is laura johnston but think about it from the district standpoint they there's no you if they say, hey, look, the health board said to wear masks, go talk to them. They lose any accountability to the parents. They're following the science. If they don't do it, then they're exposed. Right, Laura? I mean, I think you have a point, And I do think that this was made earlier when we all thought, OK, it, the pandemic is on its way out. Like we didn't see another hill to climb here. But I don't you know, the idea that the Board of Health is going to say something and all the districts are going to listen that didn't bear out last fall when there were a whole bunch of districts that stayed in school. They were school districts that went five days a week from the beginning of the school year. And there were some districts like mine that went remote for a while or did the hybrid and changed back and forth depending on the policy. But there were others that said, no, our parents want our kids in school every day and we're going to do the best that we can with that. So I, I mean, I think it's going to be up to every district and it's going to be, I think Layla's right. Public pressure is going to play a big role I, in this. I, I will I will push back on that a little bit. I think that the districts, my district was one of the first ones that went like from the start of the year, five days in the classroom in, until there was, you know, caseload issue and then they went hybrid, whatever. So I think that the reason, though, was that they were able to to fill check all the boxes in terms of COVID safety that the County Board of Health wanted them to. They Mm -hmm. immediately split classrooms down to, you know, 10 to 12 kids per class, all spread out. They had the plexiglass. They, you know, made all the specials teachers were, were regular curriculum teachers and and had, you know, they really maxed out the precautions. And I think that satisfied the Board of Health's requirements to, to bring everybody back. So I think it, th- back then it was less about the pressure and more about can we do this safely? Now it is all about the pressure. It is all pressure from parents. I'm, I can't wait to see how this plays out. <laughs> okay. We're halfway through the podcast. We've talked about two stories. You're listening <laughs> to This Week in the CLE. Are people in Ohio actually heeding the warning that it's a matter of when, not if, they will get COVID if they don't get vaccinated? Laura Johnston, some good news on the coronavirus front. 
Yes, people are starting to take notice that, you know, vaccinations will protect them from hospitalization and death in COVID. So through Sunday, 59,693 people received their first dose in the last week, according to the Ohio Department of Health, their daily reports. That's about 8,500 a day. That's the highest point since June 19th. And we have been creeping up ever since a low in June. So that's really good news. So far in Ohio, 58% of the age eligible population is vaccinated. 49% overall, because of course, kids up to age 12 cannot be vaccinated yet. And experts have been giving these warnings. They've been saying, you know, it's just a matter of time. But I don't think people were paying heed to that until they really saw the case numbers climbing up. So we, um, I believe, got down to about 4,400 people a day of vaccinations. And now we're up to um, 10,000 a day in the most recent numbers. So, hey, that I will take it. Well, and this does confirm something we discussed a week or two ago that, that yes, there is a large contingent of people who refuse to get the vaccine. They're down mm-hmm. the rabbit hole of Facebook where they think it's electrodes to track them or to stop them from having children, all the nonsense that's out there. But but there is a belief that there's still a a sizable portion of the population that's unvaccinated that that ju- that's not opposed. They're just not doing it. They don't realize it's free. They don't know how to get it. That despite all of the publicity, they just haven't tapped into it. And it sounds like it's those folks that are seeing the reports about the variant and going, holy moly, I got to get in. Or just they thought, oh, enough people will get it that I don't have to. Like enough people will be vaccinated that I won't have to do it because, you know, they'll take care of me. Like the herd mentality, right? Like the idea that we get to herd Um, immunity without them. But I think they're starting to realize we're not getting there. This is dangerous. Yeah, it's good news, though. I hope it continues. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Here's a curveball for listeners to this podcast. Should we rename it? This Week in the CLE was originally created as a weekly roundup of the news in which we talked with reporters. When the pandemic hit, we turned it into a daily. So it's no longer This Week in the CLE. It should be Today in the CLE. But But is the CLE the right thing? Because more than half of what we talk about are statewide issues and capital news and statehouse news. It's actually what a lot of people listen to this for. So we're wondering when people are looking on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts, if they see this week in the CLE, will they have any idea what it's about? It comes across like a weekly news magazine. So let's chat about that, guys. And then we're going to seek help from our listeners to see (laughs) would they prefer a new name and what that might be. Anybody. All right, I'll get us started. I'll get us started. This is like, <laughs> I have a confession. I never really liked the name this week. This <laughs> Maybe I'm alone in this, but, but whenever I hear the abbreviation CLE, I think of the airport. <laughs> it would be like having a news podcast in Los Angeles and calling it This Week in the LAX. <laughs> You're never going to not think of the airport in that case. So, so I don't know. I always was like, Bleh. like I know. <laughs> So I, I would I would not be opposed to changing the name. I know branding is an issue and people, you know, look for it. But, um, you know, our loyal listeners, I, I, I suspect that they wouldn't mind to change well, either. And we did a survey recently of listeners and we had a very high participation. And the, the listeners listen to this every day. They listen to the whole thing. And so if if they agree that we have a stupid name and we should have a new name, <laughs> then I think they'll follow us. But what, 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 well, let me hear from Jane and, and Laura. What do you guys think? Well, this is Jane. Um, 
does it really matter what I think? I'm retiring. <laughs> <laughs> right, well, you're soon to become one of our loyal listeners, right? Yes, Jane? true, true. Um, I worry about people who like tell their Google assistant to, to play us that, you know, they're going to not know where to find us anymore, but I'm sure we can, we can overcome that. I sort of saw this week as sort of like all during the week, you know, I didn't yeah. necessarily think it implied that it was once a week, but True. you know, I'm open to change. I don't want to be one of those old people who get stuck in their ways. Right. So, you know, I just, I don't really have an alternate idea. Laura Johnston. Um, I'm all for changing it. I think today in the CLE makes a lot of sense because we are talking about, although I guess we're talking about news that happened mostly yesterday. I don't think right. yesterday in the CLE would have, <laughs> yeah. have much of a ring, but, um, but I, I, I think the idea that we do talk a lot about a statewide issues, maybe we should use Ohio instead of CLE. Um, so I, I, I think it'd be interesting to hear what people have for suggestions because I think it's a very serviceable name that we have, but it, it never like felt inspiring. My, so. my problem, this has come up repeatedly since we went daily and then people I talked to have brought this up and I always come back and say, look, I'm perfectly willing to change it, not married to anything, but to what? And then you stumble all over yourself. I mean, yeah, the easy one would be today in the CLE. But again, if I'm looking at Apple Podcasts for a discussion of statewide issues, I'm not going to look at that. I'm going to think, well, that's just a Cleveland-based thing. Right. Or, I got or if you're Layla, you'll be thinking about oper airport, airport operations. Right. Yeah, right. This, this week at the airport. How about this? <laughs> Today or maybe yesterday in Northeast Ohio and sometimes in Columbus. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, that, 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 that really has a good ring. It all is a little, a little square. All right. If you're a loyal listener to this, uh, please help us. Send send me an email, cquin at cleveland.com, with your thoughts one, about changing the name, and two, if you have a suggestion for it. I'll also send something out on subtext asking people what they think. You're listening for now to this week in the TOA. <laughs> Why are public school advocates so torqued about what's in the new Ohio budget for school vouchers, private and home schools? Jane Cahoon, there's a lawsuit coming. Yeah, we've written about these groups before that have made no secret of the fact that they plan to sue the state to challenge school vouchers for private schools. The, the groups are called uh, Vouchers Hurt Ohio and the Ohio Coalition for Equity and Adequacy of School Funding. That latter group was behind the years-long effort that ended up declaring Ohio's system of funding schools unconstitutional in the longtime DeRolf case. But anyway, on Monday, the groups came out with their assessment of the latest state budget, which which they see as benefiting private schools and, and homeschoolers at the expense of public education. Some of the items they're concerned about are uh, the increase in voucher scholarship amounts and things like tax credits for supplies for people who homeschool and for people who donate to scholarship granting organizations, things like that. But they think that those things in the budget are going to give them an even stronger case when they do file this lawsuit, which is going to be joined by more than 70 public school districts. Um, and it's expected to fo uh, focus on what's been an often cited section of the Ohio Constitution that requires the state to have a thorough and efficient system of common schools throughout the state. Uh, but interestingly, uh, people like Senate President Matt Huffman 
doesn't seem concerned about this. I mean, he sees the thorough and efficient system as one that provides educational opportunities for everyone, you know, for public and private schools. And he thinks that's just what this budget does. He he noted that lawmakers have increased spending on public schools over the over the last couple of decades and and they've put billions into school buildings. And so he's basically saying, hey, so how is that? How is somebody going to argue we're not spending enough money? What will be interesting about this if they go to court is this will end up in the hands of the Ohio Supreme Court. And next year we have an election for the chief justice of that court that could determine who wins or loses here. I mean, that that a lot could be riding on that election with regard to what they this group is seeking. Of course, public schools feel like they're just losing money here because it's all going out and that that they could use that those resources for their challenging students. But um, but if the courts, if we end up with a very conservative court, there's no way they'll be successful. Interesting case. We'll have to watch how it goes. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. How is a Chagrin Falls clerk who stole $250,000 from the village not facing jail time, while Cleveland City Councilman Ken Johnson appears to be headed for a 10-year prison term for a similar fleecing of the taxpayers? Leila Tassi. I don't get this at all. I don't get it either. $250,000? I know. I got so angry reading this. Honestly, it made me wonder if if Cuyahoga County Judge Holly Gallagher is among those who are participating in that sentencing database pilot project so that we won't (laughs) ever forget how soft she was on this totally brazen white-collar criminal. So she let this clerk, 53-year-old Debbie Bosworth, get away without a prison sentence. It's I think she got two years probation because she repaid $300,000 before her sentencing hearing on Monday. She agreed to forfeit more than $200,000 in her public employee pension to the village, and she wrote another check Monday for $100,000 to cover her theft and the cost of a forensic audit that the village had to conduct after they discovered her theft. And also the village mayor, William Tonko, did not request a prison sentence in a letter that he wrote to the court. But if she violates her, her terms of her probation, Bosworth could go to prison for 63 years. Um, She was charged with a 22 count indictment for theft in office, tampering with records and money laundering. And the story of how she did this is astounding to me because it began decades ago. She started her job with the village in 1997. She worked as a clerk in the utilities and buildings department and processed payments from residents and contractors. So she collected payments from residents who came in to pay their water bills in cash and and checks from contractors. And she realized that the finance department's accounting software didn't link with the building department software. So the village relied on her to accurately account for this money that was being deposited in each account. So Bosworth began to withhold a few checks from the building department and falsified her reports, and she pocketed cash from residential water bills, took the building department checks she withheld, and deposited them into the utility department department to cover her theft. She took an average of $20,000 a year, and the village didn't catch on to this until 2019 when she was promoted and her replacement in, in the clerk's job had gone on vacation for a week. And so Bosworth filled in for her and she did it again during the week that she filled in. When the clerk returned, she noticed Bosworth had deposited into the utility department bank account more than $700 in checks attributed to payments from residents who always paid in cash. 
So then the clerk discovered that more than $500 in payments were missing from the building department. And bada boom, she put it together and reported to supervisors. And here we are today. So in court, Bosworth read a prepared statement and apologized and said, while I may have had reasons for what I did, there is no excuse. What a cop out. I mean, what are your reasons? You like money? <laughs> like, whatever. <laughs> well, but, 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 but it does. It is striking to me that a white woman appearing in Cuyahoga County Court gets no prison time. And Ken Johnson, who's 75 and, and fleece taxpayers got convicted last week. He could spend the rest of his life in prison because he's up for a 10 year prison term. There's just no fairness here. Holly Gallagher is way in the wrong. There is no right. way if you steal a quarter of a million dollars, even if you pay it back, that you don't pay a serious penalty. This was malicious and sinister and deliberate and went on for as long as Ken Johnson did. I, it's mind boggling to me the, the difference here. And I've, I've actually heard from a couple of readers going, what? You know, so yes. when Holly Gallagher runs for re-election, we definitely we need to be asking her about right. this. This is just inexcusable treatment of, the, the of county a prosecutor. Really... Michael Malley pointed out, you know, restitution is not punishment. I mean, this makes it look like she just borrowed the money from the village. You know, like apparently Bosworth and her attorney tried to make the case that she didn't spend the money on extravagant things. She just bought groceries and and she refilled the candy dish at the office. That is a real example of how, how she spent the money. What, what did the but prosecutor she... ask for? What did what did they did they want prison time? Yeah, I mean, yes, they did. They did. I mean, they their point, you know, Michael Malley's point was, you know, this having her pay it back, that's not punishment. She she should have faced some prison time. I think she faced up to three years. That was the the maximum for for what she what she was charged with. But did uh, the they, judge you know, explain why she rebuffed the prosecution's feeling that she that this merits a prison term? Was there any explanation for going soft on on this person? I mean, I, I think that the explanation is simply that she repaid it, that she had before coming to her sentencing, wow. the, the, the village had been made whole at that point. Unbelievable. But really, I mean, her, her attorney tried to argue that, you know, well, she spent it mostly on her kids' education. And that made me even angrier yeah. to think about that because we're all doing our best to put our kids through school. A lot of parents are out of there going, you know, are out there making big sacrifices to do it. And this lady put her kid through school by stealing from the public and then repaid it like it was a loan. But she wow. did refill the candy dish. Well, so. Holly Gallagher gets today's Shame on You Award. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. That'll do it for another robust discussion on this podcast. Thank you, Jane. Thank you, Layla. Thank you, Laura. And thank you to everybody who listens. Remember, let us know what you think of the name at cquinn at cleveland.com.